Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's St Patrick's Day 1855 and William Francis King... The ladies walking, talking, unparalleled, sighing, dying, flying, pieman, master of the universe and grand sarang of the habitable globe is back in Sydney and looking flashier than ever. To properly honour the Irish saint, the flying pieman wears a new costume made by a Pitt Street tailor and paid for by his new patron, Mr William Baxter, publican of the Cricketer's Arms Hotel opposite Hyde Park. While the preponderating colour of his outfit is of course shamrock green, the Flying Pieman's new garments include the pink of perfection, the light blue of Australia and so many other hues and shades, they're more dazzling than any clothing ever seen before in Sydney. After an absence of five years, the reappearance of the fancifully decorated great pedestrian is hailed with great enthusiasm by everyone as he walks through the city streets performing an epic feat of speed and endurance. Starting from Miller's Point, the Flying Pieman flashes south to Glebe, then east to Chippendale and north to Woolloomooloo before walking along the harbour back to his starting point. Then he does another complete circuit. The whole way he's watched by crowds who hang on his every footstep and he's greeted with huge applause when he finishes his Herculean task within the prescribed two hours. Mere mortals might be at the point of exhaustion, not the flying pieman. After a quick cupper and a rubdown, he's off to Hyde Park to perform more feats for his fans. Though now nearly 50 years old, the flying pieman appears to be back and better than ever. I'm Michael Adams and this is the third and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's first sporting hero, the Flying Pieman. The description you've just heard was paraphrased from an article in the People's Advocate and New South Wales Vindicator newspaper a week after St Patrick's Day. There's no reason to believe the events described didn't happen, but the piece also bears the grandiose flourishes of William Francis King's own writings. That it was meant as a promotion was left in no doubt. The conclusion of the article said the Flying Pieman, quote, is now open to walk a thousand miles in a thousand hours, a thousand half miles in a thousand half hours, and two thousand miles in one thousand hours for any sum commensurate with the greatness of the task. He will be ready at Mr Baxter's at any moment to stake and make arrangements to commence these miraculous undertakings. William placed a similar notice in Bell's Life newspaper, adding he'd take on any pedestrian in Australia over any distance. In William's five-year absence from Sydney, pedestrianism had only grown in popularity, 
Yet the matches that attracted big money wages were usually races between two men over 100 to 400 yards, rather than epic endurance walks against the clock. This was understandable. They were easier to stage, there was no need for timekeepers to work in shifts around the clock, and punters would know the outcome in seconds or minutes rather than weeks or months. The Flying Pieman's St. Patrick's Day appearance did renew interest in his faster performances. On the 26th of March in Hyde Park, he did the 100 Stones feat. William Baxter's hotel across the way, packed with punters who could watch and wager while they drank his ales and porters. A few weeks later, on the same ground, William picked up 50 stones placed a yard apart in 16 minutes. Then, on the 23rd of April, in front of a large crowd, he performed the 100 stones feat in 36 and a half minutes, beating his set time by 90 seconds. This was also 17 minutes faster than the first time he'd taken on the challenge at Maitland with corn cobs all those years ago, and five and a half minutes faster than Abraham Nickel had managed a decade earlier. Not bad for a bloke who is now 48 years old. When reporting his plans earlier that month, the Vindicator newspaper had said, quote, The celebrated king of all the pedestrians is pursuing a severe course of training to do an event which no one has yet been successful in achieving. Could this have been the announcement that appeared in the 28th of April issue of the Illustrated Sydney News, which said the Flying Pieman would, quote, Perform the extraordinary task of picking up a hundred live cats placed one yard apart, a hundred live rats, and the same number of live mice at the same distance. We anticipate a crowded assemblage to witness such a curiosity. Sadly, there's no record of this having come off, and it's almost impossible to believe this was meant seriously, simply given the logistics of assembling and arranging such a feline and rodent menagerie and then keeping them all in place for the 10 hours or so that the task would take. More likely, this was meant as a joke to get tongues wagging and people wagering. So too, the poem that William likely wrote for The Vindicator, which began... My name is King, a monarch, that means not a common rye man. Oh, not a common tater cove, no, but a flying pie man. I've kidney dumpling, hot all hot, and fruits when they're in season. The real plums whose stones never stick within your weasen. I'll run a mile, or walk a mile, or stalk from here to Cadiz, in service of those darling patronesses of me, ladies. This jolly poem worked its way around to simple prose that announced that anyone wanting to make any bet could do so at Baxter's Pub at Hyde Park or, if prospective punters lived in Parramatta, at the bank at Tarbon Creek. Yet it appears that substantial wages didn't materialise as evidenced by the fact that there were no more endurance feats and nor were there any more faster short course events for the flying pieman. So why did bets dry up? Possibly because William rarely lost, so betting against him was like throwing money away. By the middle of 1855, he was reported as having recently taken a small bet he could sell more copies of the Herald in a set time than another man flogging copies of the Empire newspaper. A few months later, Bell's life had him working to lay sewer pipes in Pitt Street, labour he proudly claimed he did not for the money, but for charitable motives. From then on in public life, the Flying Pieman was no longer a competitive athlete, but more like a street entertainer. He'd turn up to events or places to perform what he called in an Empire newspaper ad in December 1855, quote, a multitude of amazing, graceful and noble pedestrian feats of manly agility. Though no longer setting records, the Flying Pieman remained a Sydney fixture to be, depending on who you were, celebrated, mocked or tolerated. During the mid to late 1850s, Punch and Bell's life delighted in rumours that William was running for office and printed comic pieces that imagined him taking this or that role in government. As for his own literary output, Bell's life in December 1857 reported, seemingly seriously, that the Flying Pieman had recently had a volume of his poems published by William Piddington, a notable Sydney bookseller and radical politician who'd recently been elected to the very first New South Wales State Parliament. 
Given William had talent, profile and enjoyed the favour of progressives, this seems possible, though no other record of the book exists that I've found. There is, however, a record of the Flying Pieman having another run-in with the police. In November 1857, William was arrested and brought before the court for suspicion of having stolen a large key-shaped wooden sign belonging to a George Street business. He claimed he'd just picked it up off the street and, thinking it might cause pedestrians to trip at night, had been heading to the police to hand it in when he'd been apprehended. The Flying Pieman was fined 20 shillings, which he didn't have, so he spent 48 hours in jail. Though Punch and Bell's life had joked about William holding civic office, he actually did announce his candidacy for the Sydney city election in early January 1858. One of the men he was up against was Frank Fowler, a young orator, author and editor who'd recently co-founded The Month, which was Australia's first serious literary journal. Fifteen years earlier, in The Flying Pieman's first comic tilt at political office, which we heard about in part one, he'd mocked aspiring politicians who claimed they'd been pressed into service by their friends. And that's exactly what Frank Fowler did to launch his campaign, with a letter signed by 400 supporters. Frank Fowler ran a pretty slick campaign, which included a lot of advertisements. One of these was a notice in Empire that read, quote, City election, the ladies walking flying pieman and Frank Fowler have consented to stand for the city. We don't know how serious the flying pieman was about standing for nomination, but we do know he was seriously not going to stand for appropriation by young Frank Fowler. So he took an ad directly below this notice's next appearance in Empire, quote, Most important citizens, electors and working men of Sydney, the Flying Pieman repudiates all connection with Frank Fowler. He will stand alone on his own progressive principles. Those progressive principles were described by Bell's life as that strand of emerging Australian socialism then called Red Republicanism. A few days later, William threw down the gauntlet in the pages of Empire. Quote, City election, challenge. The Flying Pieman is open to make a match with his colleague, Frank Fowler, to jump in sacks on the day of nomination, from the hustings to the council chambers, or Macquarie Street, or to Tarbon Creek, for any sum of money not exceeding the value of the month. So, if Frank Fowler dared, he could take on the Flying Pieman in a sack race. And when he lost, he could hand over control of Australia's first literary journal to its most eccentric figure. Next, William took out a sarcastic ad saying he'd be at the hustings on election day and, quote, in the event of his bosom friend Frank, Frank was in quotes, winning, winning was followed by a question mark, he would prove his, quote, hidden love for him by carrying him around. William didn't receive a nomination. Frank Fowler did and was soundly defeated, returning to England soon afterwards. Bell's Life next reported the rumour the Flying Pieman was declaring himself a candidate for one of the parliamentary seats in the new East Sydney electorate. But the Moreton Bay Courier reported that, alas, this didn't come off when William and another prominent prospective candidate named Dr Thomas Digan didn't show up when nominations were held in mid-June 1858. What that meant was the Flying Pieman didn't officially get to stand against Henry Parks, although Bell's life had opined the famed pedestrian was equally worthy of the vote as the man who owned Empire newspaper and would go on to be known as the father of Federation. Just because the Flying Pieman didn't hold civic office, that didn't mean he didn't have a voice. Given the ground he covered and how much he talked, whether there was an election coming or not, his political beliefs would have been better known to the common folk of Sydney, Parramatta and other suburbs than those held by many members of Parliament. We get an idea of his speech-making in two Sydney Morning Herald articles from 1859. On the 3rd of August, the newspaper reviewed the recollections of Geoffrey Hamlin by Henry Kingsley, who'd come to Australia during the gold rush before returning home to England to write what became the first widely known novel about Australia. Though significant now for this, recollections was then poured over by a Herald writer who was keen to find anything that didn't ring true about the depiction of the colony of New South Wales. In the book, Kingsley had described one athletic character as, quote, 
a pupil and protege of the immortal Flying Pyman. May his shadow never be less. The Sydney Morning Herald scribe interpreted this as the author claiming the famed pedestrian was dead. Proving to readers the Flying Pyman was very much alive, the reviewer noted, quote, Only last week he was haranguing a select audience in front of our office on vote by ballot, Chinese immigration and the social evil. Three months later, in November, after a political crisis saw two-time Premier Charles Cowper resign from the top job and have to contest his East Sydney seat in a by-election, the Herald dismissed one rumoured rival by saying this man was no more relevant than, quote, the flying pieman who possesses equal ambition and equal fitness and who may be heard three or four times a day offering himself to the free and enlightened electors of Sydney as a man exactly adapted to their political wants. The thing was, the Flying Pieman actually was reported to be standing for nomination in this by-election. Bell's Life listed candidates and their political stances. They included Dr Diagon, classed as a Liberal, whose nomination the paper thought a certainty. The Flying Pieman was listed as a Red Republican. Supporting him in its joking-not-joking fashion, Bell's Life quoted out of context the clearly derogatory Herald remark we've just heard about William's fitness and ambition. Bells asked, who shall say that he will not be chosen, for once the Herald is quite right. Questions about the Flying Pieman's fitness had been raised, including by another candidate, Richard Driver Jr., a radical lawyer whose political ideology Bell's life dismissed as anything Aryan. Bells continued, quote, We should like to see the gentleman who could dispute either Mr. Pieman's fitness or his certainty of being chosen. Mr. Pyman's long career as a public man and his uniform consistency have produced for him the unlimited confidence of all classes of his fellow citizens who will prove their gratitude for past services by their votes. It went on, quote, Compared with Mr. Pyman, what, we would ask, has Mr. R. Driver Jr. ever done to develop the resources of the country or advance the moral and material prosperity of the colonists? Has he, like Mr. Pyman, ever walked from Parramatta to Sydney with a billy goat tied around his neck by way of a comforter? Has he ever, in the true spirit of philanthropy, warmed the hands and filled the bellies of the grateful multitude with mutton, kidney, veal or fruit, hot, all hot? Never. It is therefore somewhat difficult to discover upon what grounds the lawyer joins issue with the Pyman, whose very fitness is acknowledged by the leading journal. William Francis King wasn't on the hustings in Hyde Park a few days later when candidates spoke to the immense crowd of male electors. Yet, the flying pieman? He stole the show anyway. That radical lawyer, Richard Driver Jr., had just finished speaking. As Freeman's Journal reported on the 9th of November 1859, quote, Dr. Diagon then essayed to address the electors, but the flying pieman coming at this moment in full paraphernalia from the city created such a diversion from the hot siege of the hustings that the doctor was paid little attention to. That had to hurt because it was the crowd's show of hands that would determine the two candidates for the following day's election. Supposed favourite, Dr. Diagon, missed out. Richard Driver got the nod to stand against former Premier Charles Cowper, who won and who'd be back in the Premier's job for the third time in 1861. So, had the Flying Pieman appeared by chance at the very moment favourite Dr Diagon started speaking? Or had the distraction been a deliberate attempt to undermine him? This might sound like a conspiracy theory, but as we'll hear, a later New South Wales Premier would accuse his political enemies of sabotaging him by deploying the Flying Pieman in very similar fashion. The Saturday after the Flying Pieman's distracting appearance in Hyde Park, the 12th of November, 1859, William Francis King published his last will and testament in the pages of Bell's Life. The now 52-year-old named as his executors Nathaniel Payton Jr., a well-known publican and son of a Parramatta pioneer, and another Parramatta licensed victualler named John Moody. In his will, the Flying Pieman declared that he too was a gentleman of Parramatta and of sound mind. Yet the latter claim might have been called into question by the will's key provision, quote, 
I bequeath unto my dear treasure wife, maiden name Miss Eleanor Anne Howe, now Lady Championess Eleanor Anne William Francis King, immediately after my demise, all the residue of my effects, either real or personal, subject to her paying by the way of legacy in the name of myself, William Francis King, her lawful death and glory living husband, the sum of £100 sterling, coin of Great Britain, to each and every church or charitable institution, widows and orphans, and school of arts in particular, in the colony of New South Wales. The flying pieman was married? Who knew? No one, because it wasn't true. William had not secretly married Eleanor Anne Powell and made her his wife, much less his lady championess. This was as much a fantasy as him having an estate from which she could give £100 to all those charitable institutions. Eleanor Anne Howe, though, she was real. Then about 24 years old, she was the third daughter of a Parramatta pioneer whose home was in the centre of town on the corner of Church and Phillip Streets. Records at Ancestry.com.au show that her sister Elizabeth was married to none other than Nathaniel Payton Jr., one of William's two executors, so presumably also his good friend. The Flying Pieman had, over the past 20 years, frequently stayed in Parramatta, and by 1859, per his will, he identified it as his place of residence. Among those he was said to lodge with when in town was Hugh Taylor Jr., a local alderman and future state parliamentarian who had a house across from Parramatta Park's gates. So, the pieman spent a lot of time in Parramatta and he was well known and even accepted by the establishment. This would have given him ample opportunity to know Eleanor Powell and to fall in love with her. As for Eleanor, well, all of her life, the flying pieman would have been on the scene, a colourful, kindly figure of fun who was especially beloved by children. Eleanor, for instance, would have been about 10 when he'd strutted Parramatta on those stilts in a race against time to pick up slippery peach stones set one third of a yard apart. Did grown-up Eleanor have feelings for William? Even if she had, it would have hardly been proper for a well-bred young woman such as herself to marry an itinerant pieman, no matter how popular and no matter that he'd once been from a good London family. How then to explain the flying pieman's last will and testament? Perhaps he simply wanted on record what he desired so badly. Eleanor as his treasured wife and an immense fortune he could bequeath to her to use for the social good in line with his political beliefs. How did Eleanor react to him making such a public claim that they were married? We can only guess. Maybe theirs was a forbidden love and her heart broke that they couldn't be together. Maybe she was horrified this man twice her age hadn't taken no for an answer and had taken his delusions public. Maybe it was somewhere in between and she just laughed it off as another of his eccentric jokes. Eleanor Ann Howell didn't inherit anything from William. That's because she died on the 10th of June 1860 in her home in Parramatta. Eleanor was just 25. Her passing, the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, deeply regretted by all who knew her. Her funeral was held two days later, organised by her brother-in-law, Nathaniel Payton Jr. William's love was forever out of reach. There is a strong circumstantial indicator that Eleanor's death affected him deeply. On the 14th of June, two days after her funeral, William was brought before the court in Sydney by an inspected tailor. Empire newspaper reported he was charged, quote, with being of unsound mind, having been found sleeping in the open air. For two decades, the Flying Pieman's peculiarities had been accepted and even embraced by Sydney. Now, he'd apparently crossed some line, and it happened right after Eleanor died. William's conduct in court, Empire said, was very eccentric. Quote, he entered into a long and flowery oration on things in general and his own special fitness to heal all the wounds of the state, insisting that if he'd been sent for during the late ministerial crisis, all would have been well 
and a just and liberal land bill would have been the law of the land. The magistrate said none of that was relevant. Quote, You're being charged with being of unsound mind. The flying pieman shouted, It's a lie. I'm the soundest man in the community and the only man that has a heart. The magistrate said William needed to put up a security or go to Darlinghurst Jail for a week. William couldn't put up his bond and sadly had no one to do it for him. The constable told the flying pieman to come along. He refused. So William was dragged from court shouting about the injustice being done to him. The flying pieman had a point about that. He hadn't been charged with a crime, but rather of being of unsound mind. So why send him to jail for a week rather than to an asylum? The Empire newspaper was outraged. Quote, We regret to see that a man who has been charged with nothing worse than harmless eccentricity should have been thought a fit subject for Darlinghurst. The editorial continued, quote, King, the flying pieman, however eccentric he may be in his general conduct, is one of the most harmless creatures in existence. And accepting his extraordinary idiosyncrasy, respecting walking feats, and his fondness for notoriety, no more insane than the magistrate who sent him to jail. He has been known in Sydney for a great number of years, and we venture to say that those who have had the best means of becoming acquainted with his real character will unite in stating that a more honest, truthful, sober and inoffensive man is not to be found in the country. Empire worried that, in a cruel irony, the free-spirited flying pieman, accustomed as he was to living and sleeping in the open air, might now be driven insane in the jail. William Francis King wasn't, and he was soon back on Sydney streets as colourful and chatty as ever. In May 1862, a letter writer to Empire newspaper gave a snapshot of the flying pieman at age 55. On my landing at the Circular Quay, the first person I met struck me from his extraordinary appearance. He was attired in apparel which displayed all the colours of the rainbow and was ornamented with a bunch of ribbons, like those worn by a recruiting sergeant fluttering from a comically shaped hat. He was addressing, with great volubility, a number of boys by whom he was surrounded. Through the 1860s, the flying pieman kept on walking and talking and eking out a meagre living by selling fruit. He himself didn't make the newspapers that often anymore, but his name did, usually because a politician or reporter used him as a ready simile. Someone who was colourful, talkative, tenacious, fast or apparently gormless might be said to be like the flying pieman. Yet, no one was really anything like the Flying Pieman. In February 1865, Colonial Society magazine published a poem about him, which depicts two late-night drinkers coming across the Flying Pieman. This poem was rediscovered by folklorist and musician Warren Fay, who has for 50 years been uncovering, preserving, sharing and recording such verses and songs. He was kind enough to give me permission to use the music from his 2012 album, Australian Bush Orchestra, that we've been hearing in this episode. Warren also recorded and set to music that Colonial Society magazine poem about the Flying Pieman. Here it is, much as it may have been heard in the streets of Sydney 155 years ago. Was the close of a heavy drinking bout on port and sherry cape from public half seas over we had just made our escape our infant in its cradle was peacefully asleep and merrily we rolled along the street of Churchill Steep. At length Bill Tompkins gave a shout of terror and of fear. As though he just had gazed upon some stern policeman near. We looked all down the pavement, cried Tompkins, well I'm blowed. See where the flying pieman comes, bounding over the road. He comes, the flying pieman comes, and terrible his pace. 
He scuds along the flinty path as though he ran a race. The cards and placards in his hat all pasted on awry are circulated quickly as the pieman dashes by. Scudded on too speedily to mark his rapid flight. In fear and consternation, then we staggered off half tight. Quote Tompkins, when we travel home, I fear there'll be a breeze. Our better halves will put an end to these delightful sprees. Then Mark, the flying pieman, comes for comical his doom. He scuds about from morn till night, queer costumes doth assume. Around the town he beats about forever, night and day. And the boys, they shout, the flying pieman, hip, 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 hooray. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In his 60th year, William Francis King, the Flying Pieman, performed one last big stunt that combined many of those P's for which he was famed. Pomp, pedestrianism, politics, parody, proselytising and poetry. On the late morning of the 5th of November 1867, which was Guy Fawkes Day, the Flying Pieman popped up on Pitt Street at the head of what the Illustrated Sydney News called a ragged brigade of boys and urchins. They carried six guys, that is, effigies, dressed in the costumes, cocked hats and swords and all, of the six members of the colonial ministry. These were the most powerful men in the land, including Premier James Martin and Colonial Secretary Henry Parks, and here they were being conflated with the most notorious traitor in English history. At 11 o'clock, the Flying Pieman led his merry band of mini-mockers from Pitt Street to Park Street and then to George Street. Over the next few hours, shouting all the while, they toured what Bell's life called, quote, the most populated parts of the city, affording unbounded fun and amusement to Her Majesty's lieges. At three that afternoon, the Flying Pieman's parade reached the gates of New South Wales Parliament just as the Premier and other bigwigs arrived. Before the Premier ordered them to move on, William Francis King made a speech and recited poetry, including one that began, quote, Oh, please to remember, the 5th of November, Guy Fawkes may be dead, but we've got here instead six Windsor uniforms all of a row to carry about for a rare show when the Prince comes ashore at the end of December. So shut your mouths and open your eyes, and I'll show you a precious lot of guys, some of them rogues and some of them fools, some of them tinkers and some of them tools. The reference to the prince was His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Alfred, already in the colonies and soon to be in Sydney. And this had to make the stunt extra embarrassing for the New South Wales government, especially as it was reported in newspapers all across Australia. What also angered Premier James Martin was his belief that his political opponents had paid the Flying Pieman £10 to stage what was meant to look like a spontaneous public protest. The Illustrated Sydney News certainly hinted at this in its report that said the Flying Pieman was, quote, evidently coached for the occasion. The Guy Fawkes gag was to be the Flying Pieman's last reported hurrah, yet he wasn't done with walking, working and wooing the public. 
While the heads of the People magazine had been wise to William Francis King's ways in 1847, Empire newspaper was finally catching up. And it reported at this time, quote, Like Hamlet, he affects a trifling amount of derangement, yet there is much method in his madness. He understands human nature and knows that it is necessary to attract public attention in some way before it is possible to do business. The paper continued, And when once he has drawn a crowd together, he can usually keep them around him. The paper said that he was an excellent improviser and that, quote, many of his appeals to the public are irresistible in their way. Empire quoted one of his spiels. This here is the most important day of the year. It ain't because the Kayama mystery is laid bare. It ain't because the ministry have defeated the opposition. It ain't because the New Zealand massacre's going on. But it are because I have apples, one and two a penny. We can date this particular sales pitch to around September 1868. The Kayama mystery was then a sensation and it referred to Henry Parks making a speech to that electorate claiming the recent Sydney assassination attempt on the Prince had been not the work of a lone deranged man but the result of a wide-ranging Fenian conspiracy that had already murdered someone else in the lead-up to the outrage. The laid bare bit that the Flying Pieman referred to was the debunking of these claims that seriously injured Henry Parks' reputation for the rest of his life. As for the New Zealand massacre, this was the horrific defeat of colonial military forces suffered there that same month at the hands of Maori resistance, a bloodbath that left 24 European soldiers dead and another 26 wounded. What this article in Empire showed was that the Flying Pieman was still as interested as ever in the news of the day, using it to feed his mind and incorporating it into entertaining spiels that had helped him feed his belly. Further evidence of his ongoing interest in public affairs was found a year later, September 1869, in a Sydney Morning Herald article placing William aboard a steamer taking revellers to a big harbour picnic. Here, the Flying Pieman, quote, entertained an audience seemingly attentive to his ideas concerning the present ministry and politics in general. Yet this article also noted his, quote, once pedestrian powers. Now elderly and increasingly infirm, the Flying Pieman's wanderings lessened and in the recollections of an old city resident published 30 years later in the Sydney Sportsman newspaper, he had by 1870 staked out a corner as his own where he lived, quote, on the reminiscent charity of those who knew him in active life. Physically fading, he was nevertheless imprinted on Sydney's cultural imagination. Punch Magazine's comic articles often bestowed imaginary honours on the Flying Pieman, celebrating him for driving a coach in the Prince's procession, elevating him to the bench to replace a justice, and investing him with a KB. That was a knighthood of the bunyip. Finding these titbits means scouring newspaper after newspaper to build up a mental image of the Flying Pieman. But thanks to an early Sydney camera enthusiast, Named John Davis, we can actually see what the Flying Pieman looked like 150 years ago. This photograph of William Francis King, which is held by the National Gallery and can be seen on their website, shows him standing and staring at the lens, though one eye seems half-closed. Slender-faced, he has a full head of salt and pepper hair that's almost neat, and his jaw bears a smattering of stubble as though it's been a day or two since his last shave. The Flying Pieman's left hand rests on his hip and in his right he holds his walking stick and his beribboned, if tatterdemalion, top hat. He wears a threadbare coat and vest decorated with a couple of ribbons and striped trousers that appear in better repair with clean-looking white slippers. He looks dignified, if down and out. Beside the Flying Pieman stands a chair on which rests John Davis's business sign and the price of a portrait. As the National Gallery notes, the photographer would have displayed this picture as an advertisement for his business. So he's hoping that William received a few shillings for this early odd example of an Australian celebrity endorsement. Other images of William were also made at this time. In June 1870, Sydney society piled into the Prince of Wales Opera House for a benefit. Among the amusements was an artist doing chalk sketches of eminent public figures with Australian Town and Country Journal recording them in this order. Henry Parks, 
the Flying Pieman, and then Frederick the Great. In March the next year, at Sydney's School of Arts, there were unveiled beautiful panoramas of Australia that included mechanical elements so that people and vessels moved across the pictures. Visitors could see the natural wonders of Victoria's Fern Tree Gully and the majesty of Melbourne's newly opened Town Hall. Among the images representing Sydney was a panorama of Circular Quay, presided over by, as Australian Town and Country Journal put it, quote, His Majesty, King Flying Pieman. Unfortunately, by then, William Francis King had vanished from the actual city streets. The past few years had been hard for him. More than 50 years later, a truth correspondent recalled seeing him on the footpath in King Street in 1870. Quote, there was no flying about him then. He was decrepit, silent, swathed in bandages, and unlike as could be to the pikehand man of a few years before. At the end of that year, the flying pieman went or was placed in the Liverpool Asylum, which despite the name wasn't for the mentally unsound, but was instead a benevolent home for old men with no place to go. Thanks to a long descriptive article found in Empire newspaper in 1871, we have a good idea of this place. Residents, called inmates, slept in beds in large dormitories. The men were fed good food, received medical attention, and were even able to earn small wages by helping to run the place. Empire's visiting journalist was amazed at the history and experience embodied in the asylum's population, which numbered 580 and was comprised almost entirely of men aged 60 to 90. This, quote, mass of unfortunate mortals included officers, lawyers, teachers, pensioners, clerks, artisans and convicts. In other words, a small army of men who'd helped build the colony before coming unstuck. As the Empire writer noted, quote, a novelist could find profitable employment here in writing truths stranger than any fiction. He described an officer who'd served in India and married the daughter of an admiral before, quote, falling on evil ways and being cashiered for some misconduct. Then there was a man who'd spent nearly a decade in the asylum and in that whole time had only spoken once a week and only then to read scripture from the Bible. Then there was a former actor who'd robbed King George IV of £250 in 1829 and had been transported soon after. But the most famous inmate? Quote, The Flying Pieman has now been in the institution nearly four months. He is as odd as ever and has a scheme in his head for benefiting the institution by giving a performance on the top of the walls of the asylum. Whether William did any wall walking is doubtful, but he did help his fellows many of whom would have been illiterate or who would have by then been suffering fading eyesight. Quote, He reads the papers to a crowd of inmates daily, wears mourning on his sleeve for French and Prussian losses and has a high opinion of Sir James Martin. Three years on, William had apparently come around to the premier he'd mocked on Guy Fawkes Day. That feeling might not have been mutual because Sir James was still cranky about it. He'd recently raised it in Parliament, blaming a political opponent for putting the flying pieman up to the Guy Fawkes stunt and saying this was evidence he was unfit to chair a commission. From the Empire newspaper's description, Liverpool Asylum offered William the basics for life and health in his old age. Yet he was still a restless soul and so he headed back to the place that had really been his home, the streets of Sydney. Sadly, this did him no good. By April of 1873, William was so emaciated he could barely drag himself along the footpaths. Yet, the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, he still kept up a flicker of his former volubility. Shortly after this, he was taken to Sydney Infirmary. Here, after a life spent as a Protestant, he apparently converted to Catholicism. About a month after he was admitted to the infirmary, a rumour went around Sydney that the flying pieman had gone to his rest. The evening news on the 21st of June 1873 declared this untrue, or at least premature, saying he was, quote, sinking so fast as to lead to the impression he will never leave the institution alive. The flying pieman made one last journey. He was transferred back to the Liverpool Asylum on the 29th of July. William Francis King died on the 12th of August 1873, 
at the age of 66. The Flying Pieman's passing was communicated by an asylum clerk whose brief message managed to get everything about him quite wrong, saying he was a Sawyer from Ireland who'd come to Australia in 1825. But this part of the message to the press was nice. Quote, The well-known Flying Pieman, William F. King, has gone to that bourne from whence no traveller has returned. Bourne was a lovely choice of word, meaning goal, limit or destination. The best tribute came in the Sydney Morning Herald, which was then reprinted all around the country. This obituary set out William's family background and reiterated this active spirit's numerous accomplishments, from those 1,000-hour quests to him carrying a goat on his shoulders and pulling a lady in a gig. It also saluted his character. Quote, He was the general favourite of the street urchins who gathered round him and, singular to say, never tormented the poor fellow whose disposition was so kind and gentle that he was always hailed with pleasure by them. Acknowledging his fame, the Sydney Morning Herald had this to say, Perhaps there was not an individual in Sydney better known than King, or, as he preferred to style himself, the walking flying pieman. William Francis King was buried in the Catholic section of Liverpool Cemetery, now known as Liverpool Pioneers Memorial Park. While the Flying Pieman was gone, he lived on in language and memory. Henry Parks, touring the country extensively the following year, had, according to the Queenslander newspaper, proved himself, quote, a worthy successor to poor King, the Flying Pieman. In August 1874, when world-famous tightrope walker Blondin was touring and did his famous cook an egg on an oven over Sydney trick, the Sydney Morning Herald described him as moving with, quote, the speed of a flying pieman. Gradually, though, the flying pieman's story and name began to fade. So much so that in December 1896, he was included in a Lantern Show lecture called Forgotten Sydney, which was given at the YMCA Hall. Through the first half of the 20th century, feature articles about the Flying Pieman popped up fairly often, though few did more than rehash what had been published in that Heads of the People article back in 1847, adding in their own mistakes about the date of his emigration and death. The Flying Pieman was celebrated in a 1974 musical play for children written by Alex Hood, the folklorist, singer and musician best known as a founding member of the band The Bushwhackers. Released on vinyl, it pops up occasionally on eBay, and I managed to get a copy for $10, finding it's a charming version of William's life that focuses on that convict girl legend and creates a redemptive rescue narrative. The Bushwhackers would also record an instrumental called The Flying Pieman, which you can hear on Spotify and other streaming music services. In 1994, author Kate Walker released a picture book for children called The Flying Pieman, which was again a charming fiction that she said at the time was in service of his spirit rather than history. And as I mentioned in part one, in 1986 the historian Stefan Williams released a 30-page monograph about The Flying Pieman, which was the closest we got to a proper biography. However, the most exhausting tribute came in February of 1985 when a young Canberra butcher and long-distance runner named Toby Field tried to break William's 1847 192 miles in 46 and a half hours. His venue was the National Sports Centre's warm-up track in Canberra. Toby's attempt was to be different to the Flying Pieman's epic match against time and distance in several important ways. For starters, he'd be running, not walking. And he'd be doing it in modern sports shoes, shorts and shirt. He'd sustain himself, as the Canberra Times reported, quote, with a high-carbohydrate diet of mashed potato and chocolate yogo washed down with Gatorade. Toby would also be giving himself rest breaks of 10 to 15 minutes. On Saturday, the 9th of February, 1985, at 3pm, he started. 25 hours later, having had four rest breaks, Toby had clocked up 168 kilometres or 104 miles and he was an hour ahead of his schedule. But that night he fell asleep on his feet and fell over a couple of times, which only cost him seconds but put him off his rhythm. 
After a gruelling 46 and a half hours, Toby Field staggered across the line and into the arms of his anxious friends and family members. He was gasping. Eight. Eight kilometres. Eight kilometres. Five miles. That was the distance he'd fallen short by. Toby's was a gutsy effort, yet it served to underscore just how incredible William Francis King's accomplishments had been. Since 1985, of course, the world has seen ultra-marathon runners go far farther and far longer than even the Flying Pieman. Greek man Yanis Kouros, who lived for a time in Australia, holds the most world records. He rose to prominence in 1985 when he beat Cliff Young's Sydney to Melbourne time by doing 960 kilometres in 5 days, 5 hours and 7 minutes. And in an accomplishment the Flying Pieman would have appreciated, in 1988 on New York roads, Giannis ran 1,000 miles in 250 hours. Reading what Giannis believes is his secret, I couldn't help but think the words could easily have come from William Francis King. Quote, When other people get tired, they stop. I don't. I take over my body with my mind. I tell it that it's not tired, and it listens. As we've heard, the Flying Pieman is barely known these days, though he's not entirely forgotten, thanks to the creative efforts of people such as authors Stefan Williams and Kate Walker, and musical folklorists Alex Hood and Warren Fay. But what about Australia's first sporting heroine? She has been completely forgotten, although she was a contemporary of the Flying Pieman and could have given him a walk for his money if they'd ever met for a match. I stumbled upon her while researching William's life, and we're going to hear her story in the next episode of Forgotten Australia, called Australia's First Sporting Heroine, The Marvellous Mrs. Douglas. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a rating and review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks again to Warren Fay for use of music from his Australian Bush Orchestra album. You can find this and his other albums at iTunes. Having seen the stage production, I can highly recommend the recording of Dead Men Talking, in which he and actor Max Cullen embody Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always... Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.